Morning. We had a deacons meeting just on last Monday night, and it was a, it was a good meeting. We've got a great set of deacons. I mean, other deacons are available in other churches, but ours is a really great bunch of deacons, and we had a lovely meeting. Um, you know, it was full agenda. There was lots of stuff about the fabric of the building and all that stuff and all the organization of the building. And, and of the church. And as I was taking um, a couple of the deacons home to their houses, um, t- taking them home, <laughs> oh, I take them home like a pet. Um, as I was taking them home, um, one of them <laughs> mentioned, said, um, I bet the early church didn't have to deal with GDPR <laughs> or with health and safety or databases and routers. And it made me think, you know, it doesn't deal with buildings or bills and stuff. And so we can almost paint an idyllic picture of the early church that they were skipping along meadows joyously singing, Oh, happy day. Um, And we kind of, I'm sure you've heard people going, let's get back to the first century church. In some senses, yes, not so hot on the persecution myself, but, you know, that's the early church. We're looking back. What have they got to say to us? Now, we felt um, it was right to look at this, this, this series, this devoted series, focusing on Acts 2, 42 and onwards. And throughout what we're going to be looking at this morning about devoted to the fellowship, there's going to be loads of Bible verses thrown at you. So it might be a good idea if you want to get ready to take notes. We don't have um, follow-up questions um, specifically for um, small groups, but maybe take some of these notes down and lead it in your groups when you meet together midweek. Um, so we have this idealized church, but the early church, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it was all about Jesus. It was all about how it was to walk around with him. It was all about what he did, who he was like, and they were passing on about Jesus. That's why it was so important. And this word devoted, Lisa expounded a little bit last, um, last week, but there, it's, it's used throughout the Old Testament as well in this sense of something being devoted to God. You read about it in regards to whenever they sacked the city that they would devote the plunder to the Lord. It meant it was utterly destroyed before the Lord. It was ultimately consumed as a gift to God. So when we talk about devoted, there's something about absolute abandonment and commitment to the apostles' teaching and to what we're looking at today, which is the fellowship. That's the passage there. Now, um, we're looking at this word fellowship. I, I don't know what you think about it. It's one of those kind of cliched Christian words that just has hung around the church like forever. I have to make a bit of a confession. Whenever the word fellowship is mentioned, one picture comes into my mind. And that picture is green teacups. <laughs> Anyone else got a green teacup thing? Um, standing with a green cup of tea, um, not a green cup of tea, a green cup with tea in it. And the tea is insipid. It's got so much milk. You know, uh, and, and you're standing there and you're not just holding that, but you're doing it during fellowship time because you cannot do it outside this time. Okay, so we're worshiping together afterwards. There is time for fellowship. Make sure you don't go over the time allotted for fellowship. Okay, it's like that's when you do it. And it usually involves, you know, standing around, having polite conversation. Um, You know, we have a bit of a, a, there's a thing that says, you know, we're called to love people. You don't have to like them. (laughs) We have a, we have a joke. uh, He's not here, sadly, but um, uh, 
Steve Hudson's usually the butt of this joke, um, which I go up to him and say, Steve, I love you. Because Jesus says I have to. <laughs> okay? And there's a bit of banter and all that. But actually, how much is it that we sometimes put on that facade of fellowship as we grasp a person's hand and we smile and we secretly want to crush that hand between our fingers? Or that we're going, eh, that's a bit wet. Eh. And you want to walk away. And that's not fellowship. Of course, it was a bit of a word that went out of fashion, but too cheesy until in the, in the 2000s, hobbits appeared. And then the word fellowship, because it was a fellowship of the ring, and there's a real sense of bondedness, and we got a picture of what fellowship was, and it was a bit more of a, an encouraging word, not just about green cups with tea in it. But I think one of the most profound uh, ways that I've heard a word fellowship being used is actually with Alcoholics Anonymous. And some friends of mine who've been involved in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they refer to it as the fellowship. And if you don't know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous, find out. It's a Christian-based, amazing, grace-filled venture that the church as a whole could learn an awful lot about. So we're looking at this word, fellowship. And it actually is based, this Greek word, which I, I'm not sure how to pronounce, okay? Apparently, it's koinonia. Can you say that with me? Koinonia. Okay, I had to check with Lisa because... I've heard this so often through, I don't know if you remember 1980s bands were called this, Christian bands, or churches were called koinonia, okay? Koinonia, and that's how I'm going to say it most of the time today, okay? And it's translated in the NIV as the fellowship. But actually, what does that mean? Surely they didn't have green cups and saucers with their version of tea at the end of their temple time. What is this koinonia about? Well, actually, one another translation of it is the word community. And I'm not talking about the community at large. It was talking about a specific, identifiable community. It wasn't just localized to a geographical area. The geographical area was Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem, you had Romans who were walking around worshiping their gods. You had Greek speakers who were just trying to philosophize all the time. Then within the Jewish people, you had, you had the Essenes, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you had these other ones, the people of the way. That's a weird group, but they just meet together. And that was the community which later became known as Christians. A community is a group of people with a shared sense of identity and purpose. So let's have a little look at this group, this group which actually comprised, as we've heard earlier, of at least 3,000 people. That's a pretty big church, isn't it? 3,000 people plus, because I said daily the Lord was adding to their numbers. But on Pentecost Day, 3,000, that was from maybe about 120, 100 people meeting in an upper room. There were 72 that Jesus sent out, but there was 12 apostles that he started with. And I think there's a picture of, um, of, the, of, of community that is captured by Jesus' 12 disciples. Because I've got a funny feeling that in a group of 3,000 people, there's maybe one or two that didn't get on. Can you imagine in a group that size? Because I know a group this size, we all get on like crazy, don't we? That's a rather uncomfortable laugh, by the way. Um, 
But in 3,000, there's going to be clashes, isn't there? And how about this? Here is the list of the 12 disciples. This is recorded in Matthew. We know them. Simon, called Peter, his brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, all those guys. Then we have two guys in particular to draw out. The two that are actually given monikers. The, th- the two that are given their job titles. There's Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Simon, the zealot, who basically is an Israeli terrorist. He is wanting freedom for the Jews, and he is willing to kill for it. He is called a zealot because the zealots were known for this sharp, small dagger, and that's what the name comes from, that they go and they'd assassinate Romans or those who were in the pay of Romans. That's what they did. They wanted a Jewish state and get rid of the Romans. So he was like a first century Jewish Al-Qaeda. I kid you not. Then we have Matthew, the tax collector, who is literally on the payroll of Rome. Can you imagine morning coffee in the disciples' house? Morning, traitor. How'd you sleep? Murderer. It's not going to be a happy setting, is it? But yet, these guys could live together. One who was desperately wanting to kill the other, and the other one who was probably terrified of the other. Do you think that all these people got on absolutely idyllically? No, because they were people. So what was this group, this 3,000 cohort of the community like? Well, this is what it comprised of. It comprised of men and women, the rich and the poor, the young and the older, conservatives and liberals, radicals and status quoers, not the band, locals and foreigners, educated, illiterate, the religious and the sinners. Do you think within that gamut of people, there might have been the odd crossword? There might have been the odd falling out. There might have been mistakes, upsets, hurts, because that happens with any group of people. So how on earth could they live in this community? And I said they were devoted to the fellowship, to the community. Well, the first thing is this. First of all, they had to have fellowship with God. Koinonia with God. Community with God. And this is a Trinitarian community. We'll just quickly go through this. They are in community with the Father. If there's a Father, it means there is a family. They were a family. I know we wax lyrical about it. It becomes a cliche, but we are a family. It is not our family. It is His family. When Jesus taught us to pray, uh, He didn't say, um, pray to my Father who is in heaven. He said, pray to our Father. See what great love the Father has lavished, that we should be called children of God. He's lavished it on us. From this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family under heaven derives its name. In Roman culture, the paterfamilias, the head of the family, gave the family his name. And that was, that was you know, the name Caesar isn't the name of a title, okay? It was Caesar's name, but he was the paterfamilias, so it's passed it on down. God is our Father, and so the family is his. And it says in John chapter 1 that we have been given the right to become children of God. It's not that we're naturally children of God. We are rebels. But God allows us. He adopts us. He brings us in. And how does he bring us in? He brings us in through fellowship with the Son. The Son, our Savior. Because we need a Savior. So I think it's appalling when we think sometimes of of self-righteousness being a way of describing the church because we are all sinners saved by grace. Psalm 53, everyone's turned away, everyone's corrupt. No one does good, not even one. So if you look around, you think, oh, person's so holy. Trust me, they're a sinner just like you. We know this in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we're justified. Why? 
How? By Jesus, fellowship in Jesus. And here's a trustworthy saying that is need to be aware. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. That's us. Paul continues saying, of which I'm the worst. We need fellowship with the Son because we all need a Savior. That's why we're together. Jesus is the basis of our unity. It was the basis of that 12 with guys who wanted to rip each other's throats out. It's whenever we launch the Do You Know Him initiative and when we do shared teaching series, we insist on saying it's got to be about Jesus. Because if we cannot unify around Jesus, then what are we playing at? It is the unifying presence. And by that, we are also in fellowship with the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, we're baptized into the one Spirit. You know, each of us don't get a different Spirit from God. That was actually quite a pagan idea, quite an occultic idea. We share in the one Spirit of God, whether Jews, Gentiles, whatever your background. And the one who keeps God's commands, God lives in him. How do we know? Because the Spirit has been given to us. And here's a familiar words at the end of the service. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the community, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit is the glue that binds us together as one. It is the, the, the essence of God within us. It's our interface with God, Jesus, the Father here on earth. And it is so important. Before we look anywhere else from, for an understanding of koinonia, it's important. It starts with fellowship with God, Father our originator, Son our Savior, Spirit our sustainer. It is the basis for koinonia. Okay? Otherwise, all we are is friends, or we're colleagues, or God forbid, co-members of the same organization, which I think sometimes describes Christian communities, and maybe even this at times. Co-members of a club, or an organization, or an institution. And Jesus had something to say about this in Luke 6. He said, if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do that. Because the thing is, if you love only those whom you like or are like you, you are not building the kingdom, you're establishing a clique. And cliques are so destructive. Whether you're in them or whether you're outside of them, they are destructive. When you're in a clique, it's really hard to know that you're in one. If you want a tester, think about the people who you see every week here at church. The same people you have the conversations with. Are they really like you? Do you have shared interests? Are they the only ones you talk to? If that's the case, beware you are on the verge of forming a clique without even knowing it. Jesus said in the same passage earlier, he said, love your enemies. Now, I'm not saying we're enemies, but he talks in other places about loving the stranger. We maybe don't know each other very well. We are still told to love one another, not just those who are our friends. And that's the basis of the next bit. We are to have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. Three times Paul writes a reminder that we are members not of a club or an organization or an institution. We are members of one body. We are members of each other. We belong to one another. We are one body. Romans 12 says that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians 4. We are all part. We belong to each other. And Jesus sets out the fundamental principle of our belonging 
and our being one with another. And you could have predicted that this was going to come up. It's such, such an easy answer. Love one another. That's simple, isn't it? In John 13, Jesus says, love one another. And by this, people will know that you're my disciples. You'll know that you're in the God family. You'll know that you're in the Jesus um, gathering community because you love one another. It will be the defining, distinctive characteristic that people will recognize I'm in the midst of you. And it is what will attract the world. These are just some of the passages. When we read earlier the Acts 2 and, and, and Acts chapter 4, the bits that kind of stick out are the bits that were told about um, the fact that they had uh, they shared their possessions and people sold things in order for people not to be out of, out of um, or the, being in poverty. And the thing is what Jesus is saying whenever he says, by this all people will know. He says, the way that you live with each other makes or doesn't make my message believable. Because the world out there knows, it knows that the out for yourself model just doesn't work. It's been promulgated for too long and it doesn't work. It leads to unhappiness, selfishness, and isolation. But there's no other story that's being told out there apart from look out for yourself. We have a different story to tell. We've got a different song to sing. We've got a different beat to dance to. We've got a different standard to live to. And the world needs to hear it and wants to hear it and is attracted to it whenever it sees it. When you love one another, the world notices it's what Jesus said. It's what we've seen in Skipton. The number of people who go, oh, it's wonderful. The church is working together. I don't think there's any coincidence in the fact that we have seen more people come to know Jesus in the past year and a half across Skipton in a time when unity has never been as strong. I think I've said that the right way around. <laughs> There is a direct correlation of the church loving one another and living in unity and people coming to know Jesus. I don't know the specifics of how it works, but it's what Jesus said and it's what we've seen happening. And not just in Skipton, but across the country. It's unity movements where we're seeing people come to know Jesus. And the church in all its different facets is growing through these things. People will know and they'll see, they'll notice. It was Tertullian in the second century, one of the early church fathers, who was an apologist. And actually in his book, The Apology, which wasn't, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. It was about defending Christianity. In Apology 39, he points out that the pagans around notice how the Christians love one another. Now, it was done in a kind of slightly cynical tongue-in-cheek way. They say they love one another, but I bet you they bite themselves in the back when they're not looking. And he says, that's not the case. We are one together. We share everything. And then I love this. We share everything except our wives. <laughs> Genuinely, Apology 39 of Tertullian. We share all our possessions, but not our spouses. It says, you guys do, but we don't. We draw a line there. I think it's brilliant. Look it up. It's hilarious. Anyway, this idea of koinonia is not easy. This idea of loving one another is not easy. I guess that's why they had to be devoted to it. Not just go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but commit themselves to it. Because it's not easy. 
In fact, it's so not easy. We have one of the most beautiful prayers for the church in 1 Corinthians that Paul writes. And we miss this so often. Paul's prayer to the people in Thessalonica says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May your love increase for each other. The reason the prayer is there is because it obviously needed increasing. I, I want to pray that for me. I want to pray that for you. I want you to pray that for us. May our love for one another increase for each other and for everyone else. And it's a big ask. And within this prayer, there is a phrase which is actually from one Greek word, which helps to fill out what koinonia actually means. And the Greek word is alelon, which makes you want to say alleluia, I think, when you see that. The Greek word is alelon. And the phrase that it captures is this, one another. I've used it intentionally about five or six times already. And we just accept it, but actually this word is powerful. This phrase is powerful, one another. It's actually in the, in the New Testament, in 27 books of the New Testament, it's mentioned or used a hundred times. And take away the Gospels and the Acts, you're down to 22 books within 22 letters to the church about how to be church. We have it at least 42 times in relation to how to be church together. I think there's something important here. If you want to understand koinonia, one another is incredibly important. These are just, it's a beautiful picture. I always wish I could do things like this. It's so lovely. But this captures the one anotherness. As I said, there's 40 odd um, mentions. Let's have a little look at them. Love occurs 14 times, six of which are just in John's letters. We have serve one another, forgive one another at least twice as mentioned, confess to one another, encourage five times we're told to encourage one another, spur one another on, carry each other's burdens, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was contextual. <laughs> Health and safety says we can't do it anymore, okay? <laughs> It says, show hospitality to one another. It says, teach one another. Admonish one another. Build one another up. Submit to one another. Accept one another. Honor one another. Bear with one another. All these are snapshots of unpacking that phrase, love one another. Or be in koinonia with each other. You want to know what it looks like? That's what it looks like. Now I want you to look at those words. For a few moments, I want you to look at all those words, and I want you to think about three things. First thing I want you to think about, when have you experienced one of those, at least one of those, from someone in this fellowship here? When have you experienced it? I'm not talking about someone just being nice to you, but one of those specifically where you felt loved, served, forgiven, greeted, shown hospitality, admonished. I want you to look at those words. I want you to ask, when was the last time you demonstrated one of those? Not by accident or because you were in the same room when it happened. When you chose, I am going to serve that person. I'm going to give that person a word of encouragement. I'm going to step out of my way to do it. I'm going to spur that person on. Catherine has been a brilliant journey with Catherine. And she has said about how people have encouraged her. Encourage her today. You're going to be swamped, Catherine. (laughs) Teach one another. How about you read something in your Bible notes that one day, maybe the one day of the week, and you go, that was really good. Tell one of your friends. Text through your small group and say, I was built up by this. Maybe you will too. Think about inviting that person or those, that family that you don't really know very well. Go, actually, I will invite you. 
Which of these are you going to do? Choose at least one. That this week, you choose to do, and you do it, and you report back to us and say you've done it. Deal? There's a little bit of giggling going on there. Tells me you're not that committed. Guys, this is how we love one another. This is koinonia. It's what it looks like. Koinonia, this, this uh, was the church. In fact, the church, the word was ecclesia. Ecclesia, that we get ecclesiastical and all that thing from, just means gathering. The get-together, the coming together, the gathering of what? It was the gathering of the koinonia, the gathering of the fellowship. We can wax lyrical about the fact that the church is not the building, it's the people. We've said that so many times. But seriously, the idea of going to church, of attending church, would have been an alien concept to the first century Christians. Yes, they went to the temple, but they went to the riverside. They went to someone's house. They were in the marketplace, and they were still the ecclesia of the koinonia. In fact, a lot of what we call fellowship would be very strange to those first believers. Of course, things do need to change over 2,000 years, especially the fashion. Um, but some of these things we need to grasp hold of. Francis Chan writes in his letters to the churches, the sacred mystery of church has too often been reduced to a one-hour optional weekly meeting to which we can attend. Let me say that again. The sacred mystery of the church has too often been reduced to a one-hour optional weekly meeting that we attend. For many years, the church, historic, was gone to, it was attended, it was demanded, it was expected. And not talking about a thousand years ago, we're talking about the 19th century. If the mill owner built a chapel, a Methodist chapel, Baptist chapel, he, you kind of, if you were his workforce, you were kind of expected to be there. You maybe were worried you might lose your job. Church was done for you or done to you for so many years. And that is alien to what it means to be koinonia. And it's not too far from us today either. We turn up, and whether it's high church or low church, we turn up to be spiritually entertained from the front. And yes, of course, sometimes from teaching and stuff like that, it needs to happen. But actually, it's much more than that. Worship, prayer, and Bible inputs from the front. Is that your only source of worship, prayer, and Bible input during the week? Our young people and children, we have left their spiritual development to professionals. We've got great youth leaders here. Well, what about our responsibility as church, the community, to raise our children in godly fashion? And what about us wanting on a Sunday to be spiritually entertained? You leave the church and you go, how was that for you? Did you enjoy that? What did you get out of it? Was it good? Was the worship good? Do we want to be spiritually entertained? And with that context, let's go back to this word koinonia and the meanings of what it is. Because this wraps things up a bit. Koinonia means community. Koinonia can be translated common life. It can be translated offering. It can be understood as a sharing together. It's used about participation, about contribution. That's what fellowship is like, not a green cup of tea. This is what the first followers devoted their way to. It's the same word Paul used for the gathering of collection to support the famished church in Jerusalem from all the other churches. It was the koinonia. 
It was a generous gift. The word generous is koinonikos. It's about a gift. And when we read about the fact that they sold property, we start thinking, where's my portfolio and how can I hide it? Yes, there was a form of communism, but that word has been warped and devastated and destroyed. People didn't need anything because they looked out for each other. We need to see beyond this, beyond that kind of the fact that they shared all their possessions and see what was the heart behind it, the koinonia. The fact is they were all contributors. They were all contributors. They were all devoted to the contribution of the fellowship. And what I fear within the church as a whole today and even here in this place is that perhaps we're not contributors, but we are consumers. We're consumers. We come in here, we sit down, we get spiritually entertained, we feel we've had our fill, and we go away. And we either, um, you know, we, we come to church, we consume what's on offer, we either complain or we compliment or we just come again. Those are the things. We come again, we complain, we compliment, we consume. That's never what the church was meant to be. It was meant to be contribution, participation. Are you a consumer or a contributor? There's um, a website called shipoffools.com, which is slightly irreverent uh, take on the church. And they've got a part of it which is called um, the mystery worshiper. Best way to describe it is like TripAdvisor for churches. <laughs> and, uh, and a mystery worshiper would come and they would, they would kind of assess a worship at random. You'd get a little card saying, you've been visited by a mystery worshiper. Wouldn't it be amazing if they're here today? <laughs> And then you go and read online. We've actually not been visited. I have checked. Please don't ask them. <laughs> so people can read up what's good, what's bad. And actually, there's a bit of a good heart about challenging the church out of its place of complacency and our consumerism of church and say, where are you contributing? I've had people, we've had people come to us and say, do you know what? I don't feel part of the church. And invariably, we want to ask, what are you getting stuck into? It's not because we want to bleed all of you drive your time and resources. It's because it's the way you feel part of something. It's the essence of koinonia. It's contribution, participation, getting stuck in, doing the coffee after church, doing messy hands, signing up to the youth, offering to worship in the worship band, whatever it is, just being here and being part of a small group, maybe even volunteering to lead it. That's what they did, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the koinonia, to the contribution. We have got a challenge for you, and it's going to be a challenge because there's lots of you here. And I'm going to look at my lovely assistants. Thanks. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, one each if possible. And just start firing them around, take them to the back if you want. Um, this is a, you know, we've given our offering. It's up here. But I've also got this offering note. And on this offering note, it simply says, and this is voluntary, it's not like we won't let you out unless you do it. You put your name, because it's useless if it's um, kind of anonymous. And the question below says, I can contribute to the fellowship, to the koinonia, and write down what way you can or are contributing. What way, what gifts has God given you? What passions has God given you? What are you willing to do in order to be a contributor to this koinonia? I have to say there are two things.
things, two caveats. One, this is not a contract. <laughs> this is not, ah, oh, you said this and you will do it. Okay? This is just an offering. But it's good to do something to show that we're thinking about it. The other thing, this is not a guarantee that you will be doing this thing. This is saying that I have been given something and I can contribute. So if you don't want to do it, that's absolutely fine. But what I'm asking is that you fill this in. What can you offer? It could be time. It could be words of encouragement. It could be that you're a cracking cook. It could be that we, because we don't know everyone here. We don't know what gifts you've got, what abilities, what passions, what drives you all the time. And then we ask you just to offer, there's a basket here to put it back in at the end. This is not a time to go, oh, I'm a bit bashful and a bit shy. What has God given you that you could contribute to the church, to the ecclesia of the koinonia? Because when we're part of the koinonia, we experience that belonging. For some being here, for some just literally coming through the doors, is as much as they can contribute at this time. We've had people come here from other places, burnt out, frazzled, hurt, and in despair. And we have said to them, you are doing nothing for a year. You need to rest. Their presence was all they could contribute. We had this mad person called Martin Lee who came through the door and said he did a, a few things about buildings. Madman saying that to his first week. But he contributes. We participate. We feel this. We're part of the body of Christ. I'm not pushing on to Christmas too much, but it says in, uh, in the bleak midwinter, what can I bring him, poor as I am? And it says, what can I bring him? Give him my heart. Be part of something amazing. Because that something amazing is the church of Jesus Christ. Because whenever it works, it is beautiful. It is amazing. It is attractive. And so people can see that we are truly the body of Jesus Christ in this place. Let's contribute.